as I was thinking about last week, and, and, and uh, for some reason, I really felt like the Lord was leading me to um, talk a little bit more about the situation in the Middle East with Israel. Because for us in Western culture, we're very spoiled. We're not persecuted. We're not, we don't have to really worry. I mean, now obviously we've, we've been under attack and we've been attacked throughout, you know, really since 2001 on our own homeland, but nothing to the extent of how Israel has been persecuted. So I wanted to start off this, this evening with this, just this quick video that really, really explains the plight of Israel and how things and how countries and people have been coming against them for, for really thousands of years. But this is really going to focus on uh, the time frame between 1948 and today. If you guys will roll that. When I did my graduate studies at the Middle East Institute at Columbia University's School of International Affairs, I took many courses on the question of the Middle East conflict. Semester after semester, we studied the Middle East conflict as if it was the most complex conflict in the world, when in fact, it is probably the easiest conflict in the world to explain. It may be the hardest to solve, but it is the easiest to explain. In a nutshell, it's this. One side wants the other side dead. Israel wants to exist as a Jewish state and to live in peace. Israel also recognizes the right of Palestinians to have their own state and to live in peace. The problem, however, is that most Palestinians and many other Muslims and Arabs do not recognize the right of the Jewish state of Israel to exist. This has been true since 1947, when the United Nations voted to divide the land called Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews accepted the United Nations partition, but no Arab or any other Muslim country accepted it. When British rule ended on May 15, 1948, the armies of all the neighboring Arab states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Egypt, attacked the one-day-old state of Israel in order to destroy it. But to the world's surprise, the little Jewish state survived. Then it happened again. In 1967, the dictator of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, announced his plan, in his words, to destroy Israel. He placed Egyptian troops on Israel's border, and armies of surrounding Arab countries were also mobilized to attack. However, Israel preemptively attacked Egypt and Syria. Israel did not attack Jordan and begged Jordan's king not to join the war. But he did. And only because of that did Israel take control of Jordanian land, specifically the West Bank of the Jordan River. Shortly after the war, the Arab states went to Khartoum, Sudan, and announced their famous three no's. No recognition, no peace, and no negotiations. What was Israel supposed to do? Well, one thing Israel did a little more than a decade later in 1978 was to give the entire Sinai Peninsula, an area of land bigger than Israel itself and with oil, back to Egypt because Egypt, under new leadership, signed a peace agreement with Israel. So Israel gave land for the promise of peace with Egypt, and it has always been willing to do the same thing with the Palestinians. All the Palestinians have ever had to do is recognize Israel as a Jewish state and promise to live in peace with it. But when Israel has proposed trading land for peace, as it did in 2000, 
when it agreed to give the Palestinians a sovereign state in more than 95% of the West Bank and all of Gaza. The Palestinian leadership rejected the offer and instead responded by sending waves of suicide terrorists into Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinian radio, television, and school curricula remain filled with glorification of terrorists, demonization of Jews, and the daily repeated message that Israel should cease to exist. So it's not hard to explain the Middle East dispute. One side wants the other dead. The motto of Hamas, the Palestinian rulers of Gaza, is, we love death as much as the Jews love life. There are 22 Arab states in the world, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean. There is one Jewish state in the world, and it is about the size of New Jersey. In fact, tiny El Salvador is larger than Israel. Finally, think about these two questions. If tomorrow Israel laid down its arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? And if the Arab countries around Israel laid down their arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? In the first case, there would be an immediate destruction of the state of Israel and mass murder of its Jewish population. In the second case, there would be peace the next day. As I said at the outset, it is a simple problem to describe. One side wants the other dead. And if it didn't, there would be peace. Please remember this. There has never been a state in the geographic area known as Palestine that was not Jewish. Israel is the third Jewish state to exist in that area. There was never an Arab state, never a Palestinian state, never a Muslim or any other state. That's the issue. Why can't the one Jewish state the size of El Salvador be allowed to exist? That is the Middle East problem. I'm Dennis Prager. Okay, does that kind of clear up some things about what's happened really since 1947 and really since Esau and Jacob. <laughs> it's a time that goes back that far. This fighting, this, uh, this war that they've just been having against each other for all this time. And we tried to establish last week, and I hope that we did, that the majority of the Palestinians are terrorists. The majority of the Palestinian leadership are terrorists, and they just want Israel destroyed. So that's going to help us kind of uh, have a clear picture of what we're going to go into tonight. Now, this is the second part of signs in Israel. And the next signs are the signs for the end of Israel. Understand, and we said this last week, all of the prophetic things that were ever discussed in Scripture and predicted in Scripture about the end times have taken place now, as of September 27th, up to the rapture. Okay, so all the other prophetic things that we're going to be talking about are going to be talking about after the rapture. That seven-year tribulation period. The first of which is the Gog and Magog War. The Gog and Magog War. And there's actually two wars. The first war has already started, and its war is, uh, it is written in Psalms, actually Psalms chapter 83. And this is a regional war uh, between Israel and her neighbors. And in this war, eventually Israel will wipe out her enemies, and Damascus and Syria are completely destroyed. Okay, so that conflict is happening now. 
but the result of that conflict has not happened yet. And here's the other thing. So I think sometimes we lose sight of, of the strife and the tension that's happening in that world uh, uh, in the Middle East. And I think part of the reason that we've kind of lost touch with it is because we've kind of gotten tired or numb to stories about Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. We lived it. We've sent our family members over there to fight in wars. And, real, and, and now we just kind of want to be done with the whole Middle East. I think that's kind of the attitude of, of Americans. And so we've lost sight to the fact that Israel's still over there. We may pull our trips, troops out, but they're right in the middle of it. And the other thing that there's a lot of confusion about is this war that's happening in Syria. And Syria is an integral part to this prophetic that we're talking about. And Syria is such a juggernaut. It's such a mess. And even though this, this very smart professor was able to sum up what the problem is with Israel and her enemies, the problem that is in Syria is very complex. We hear things like ISIS or ISIL. We hear things like uh, the rebels and the Turks. Uh, we hear th th some things about Assad, and, and we don't really understand. We, you know, and, and we have presidential candidates that say, I don't care if Russia bombs ISIS, that's great. And, and so we kind of think, well, then we're on, uh, Russia's on our side. But when you really look at it, it's extremely confusing. But I, so I want to show you this clip, this uh, next video, that will help, help you understand what a mess Syria is and how it's not going to be fixed. Syria's war is a mess. After four years, the conflict is divided between four different sides on the ground. Each side has different foreign backers, and those foreign backers don't even agree with one another about who they're fighting for or who they're fighting against. To understand all this, the crisscrossing interventions, the moving battle lines, it helps to go back to the beginning of the war and watch how it unfolded. The first shots in Syria's war are fired in March of 2011 by Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad against peaceful Arab Spring demonstrators. In July, some of the protesters start shooting back, and some Syrian troops even defect from Assad's army to join them. They call themselves the Free Syrian Army, and the uprising becomes a civil war. Extremists from Syria and from around the region start traveling to join the rebels. Assad actually encourages this by releasing jihadist prisoners to tinge the rebellion with extremism, make it harder for foreigners to back them. In January of 2012, Al-Qaeda forms its new branch in Syria called Jabhat al-Nusra. Also around then, Syrian Kurdish groups who've long sought autonomy take up arms and de facto secede from Assad's rule in the north. That summer is when Syria becomes a proxy war. Iran, which is Assad's most important ally, intervenes on his behalf. By the end of 2012, Iran is sending daily cargo flights, has hundreds of officers on the ground. At the same time, the oil-rich Arab states on the Persian Gulf begin sending money and weapons to the rebels, mainly to counter Iran's influence and mainly through Turkey. Iran steps up its influence in turn in mid-2012 when Hezbollah, which is a Lebanese Shia group backed by Iran, invades to fight alongside Assad. Now the Gulf states respond by sending even more money and weapons to rebels, Saudi Arabia really leading the effort at this point, and this time going a lot through Jordan, who also opposes Assad. Now by 2013, the Middle East is divided between generally Sunni powers on one side supporting the rebels and Shias on the other side supporting Assad. Now that April, the Obama administration, horrified by Assad's atrocities, signs a secret order authorizing the CIA to train and equip Syrian rebels. But the program stalls out at first. 
At the same time, the U.S. quietly urges the Arab Gulf states to stop funding extremists, but their requests go ignored. In August, Assad uses chemical weapons against civilians in the town of Ghouta. Men, women, children lying in rows, killed by poison gas. It is in the national security interests of the United States to respond to the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons through a targeted military strike. Russia proposed on Monday that Syria su uh, surrender control over its chemical weapons to the international community for its eventual dismantling to avoid a U.S. military strike. The U.S. ends up backing down, but the whole thing establishes Syria as a great powers dispute, with America against Assad and Russia backing him. Just weeks later, the first American training in arms through that CIA program finally reached Syrian rebels. The U.S. is now a participant in the Syrian war. In February of 2014, something happens that transforms the war. An al-Qaeda affiliate, mostly based in Iraq, breaks away from the group over internal disagreements over Syria. The new group calls itself the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and it becomes al-Qaeda's enemy. ISIS doesn't fight Assad. Instead, it fights the other rebels and it fights the Kurds, carving out a mini-state in Syria that it calls its caliphate. And that summer, it marches across Iraq, seizing territory and galvanizing the world against it. Then, in September, almost exactly one year after it almost bombed Assad in Syria. We're moving ahead with our campaign of airstrikes against these terrorists, and we're prepared to take action against ISIL in Syria as well. That summer, the Pentagon launches its own program to train Syrian rebels. But unlike the CIA program, this one will only train rebels who fight just ISIS, not Assad. And the program fizzles out, showing that America now opposes ISIS more than Assad, but also that there's really no like-minded force on the ground in Syria. In August, Turkey begins bombing Kurdish groups in Iraq and in Turkey, even as Kurds are fighting ISIS in Syria. Turkey also doesn't bomb ISIS in Syria. All of this deepens tension with the US, over this question of whether they need to treat Assad or ISIS the primary enemy, and creates a lot of confusion among the Kurds about where the U.S. stands. Now Assad has been losing ground all this time, to ISIS, to the rebels, and in September of 2015, Russia intervenes in his behalf. Russia says it's there to bomb ISIS, but in fact it just bombs the anti-Assad rebels, including some rebels who are backed by the U.S. So as it stands now, there are lots of different groups and outside countries involved in Syria's war. And even among allies, there are big disagreements about who their enemies are, who to support, and how to do it. And those contradictions are a big part of why, for this war, there is just no end in sight. So what a mess, right? Did you realize how confusing it was or what a mess it really was? And this is why there's no solving it. This is, that, this is the border wars that is happening that is predicted in Psalms 83. But what we see is something bigger now that's gonna happen right after the rapture, I believe, and it's called the, the war with Gog and Magog, much larger. Ezekiel 38, one through nine says, this is another message that came to me from the Lord. Son of man, prophesy, uh, prophesy against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshesh and Tubal. I'm going to tell you who all these people are in just a second. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog, I am your enemy. I will turn you around and 
put hooks into your jaws to lead you out to your destruction. I will mobilize your troops and cavalry and make you a vast and mighty horde, all fully armed. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya will join you too with all their weapons. Gomer and all its hordes will also join you along with the armies of Beth Torgamah from the distant north and many others. Get ready, be prepared, keep all the armies around you mobilized and take command of them. A long time from now, you will be called into action. In the distant future, you will swoop down on the land of Israel, which will be lying in peace after her recovery from war and after the return of her people from many lands. You and all your allies, a vast and awesome horde, will roll down on them like a storm and cover the land like a cloud. So this is a prophecy about a war that hasn't happened yet, but it's about to happen. And it's setting up right before our eyes. So who were these nations? Well, Gog and Magog is Russia. Persia is Iran. And understand, Iranians are not Arabs. They're Persians. This also includes areas of Iraq and Afghanistan. Ethiopia is the Sudan, which is northern Africa. And Turkey is Beth Togamara. Togamara. Okay. Did you hear any of those familiar names about all the stuff that's happening in the Middle East right now? Now, when Ezekiel wrote this prophecy, the nation of Islam did not exist. There was no such thing as being Muslim. Do you know when Islam started? Do you have any idea? It was 700 years after the death of Christ. That's when Islam began. Islam did not become a, a religion until the 7th century AD. Ezekiel didn't realize that what he was describing was the modern day Islamic world that is radicalized against Israel. I mean, this guy lived like 2,500 years ago and he's making a prophecy about something that is happening now and he doesn't really know, he doesn't know the current names of these countries but he knows the names of the, uh, of the areas uh, at his time. Meanwhile, all this stuff is going on. Russia is helping Iran to build their nuclear facilities. Now, Iran says that this is just so that they can have nuclear energy, but that's not the truth. They want to be able to have nuclear capabilities for destruction. And it's not Iran. It is the Islamic, Islamic Republic of Iran and the Iranians in ISIS. There's a tight, tight-knit uh, uh, relationship there. ISIS is an Islamic state that believes that they have been called by Allah to destroy Israel and usher in the end times. They believe that. They are vowed to destroy Israel. That's why they should never get any serious weaponry because they can't be trusted with it. Years ago, Saddam Hussein uh, was also very anti-Israel. He was building a nuclear reactor, and Israel bombed it. Do you remember when that happened? It was years ago. And they stopped him from gaining nuclear technology. Reports in the news were that Israel was planning on bombing Iran last year, and the Americans told them, if you do it, we'll shoot your planes out of the sky. So they stopped. So Israel... This little state is isolated in the Middle East. We have changed our policy when it comes to Israel. We've always been their best friend. They've always been our best friend. But officially as a nation, we've changed now. We're no longer standing with Israel. ISIS now controls half of Syria. Syria's vow is to destroy Israel as well as other neighboring nations have also made that vow. And isn't it interesting that after 2,500 years 
The Bible predicted this political climate. It predicted all of these nations would exist. It predicted all of these nations would hate Israel and, a plot to, and would plot together to destroy God's nation. That's unbelievable to me. But how's the war going to start? Now, we know it's prophesied, but how's it going to start? Well, let me give you a theory that I believe is right. And in heaven, one day you'll say, you were right. Israel has to defend herself, correct? And Israel, according to scripture, is going to survive the Gog and Magog war. They can't let Israel, or they can't let Iran get nuclear capabilities. They can't do that. So Israel is eventually going to bomb Iran. And they have sophisticated weaponry. They are brave. They are united in their cause, they are well-trained. And Israel, that little bitty country, has a stronger military than all of the other Arab nations combined. So they have the strength and the power to do it. So when they bomb, they'll bomb them for self-preservation. Russia has said openly that, Israel, if you bomb Iran, we're gonna bomb you. We're gonna come after you. God says about those that will attack Israel in Ezekiel that he's going to put a hook in their jaw and he will drag them down to the mountains of Israel. Ezekiel 38 goes on to say that when all of these nations attack Israel, Israel will not have to fire one shot. God is going to personally take care of those countries himself. This is God's answer to Islamic Jihad. That's his answer to it. And it, according to scripture, will take seven months to bury the dead and seven years to clear the debris. Now he uses this scripture, he uses this illustration because in, in the biblical times, when you had a, a donkey, you would, and you were trying to get him to come around and, and donkeys can be stubborn, they, would, they had this hook and they would stick that hook in their jaw with this pole and they would drag that donkey around where they wanted, to, wanted it to go. And isn't it interesting that that is the same type of verbiage that God is using when he's going to deal with this ass? <laughs> of Israel, of, of Russia, and, and of Syria. He uses the example so that we can understand that, that God is really the one that's in control here. They think that they're in control. They think that they can, they can flex their military might, but God is saying, no, 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 I'm in control. And this could happen tonight. All of the nations are present and accounted for. All of them are aligned and all of them hate Israel. This is how close we are. So the Gog and Magog War. Now, some theologians, uh, uh, Jerry Jenkins believes that the Gog and Magog War will happen right before the rapture. Uh, but most people believe, uh, most theologians believe that the Gog and Magog War will happen right after the rapture. But regardless, if it happens, it's close. If the Gog and Magog War breaks out, then you have permission to sell everything you got and go to Hawaii, okay? Because we're that close but I actually don't believe that we will see the Gog and Magog war. I think we'll already be gone. So that's that first sign of the end of Israel. Secondly, there's gonna be a seven-year covenant with the Antichrist. I believe that at that time of the Gog and Magog war, the Antichrist will come to rise. And Daniel 9, 27 says, he will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, which is seven years. But after half this time, 
three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Then as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilege object that causes desecration until the end has been de decreed, is poured out on this defiler. Now understand that, the, remember we talked about the Temple Mount. We talked about uh, Al-Aqsa. And we talked about the, the fact that the, the Israelites are going to take the Temple Mount back. They have to rebuild the temple for a certain reason. Do you know why? Exactly. So right now, the, understand, Jews are still living under the law. And since the temple was destroyed, they have had no place to do blood sacrifices for atonement of sin. So for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, after the temple has been built, they are going to be doing blood sacrifices again at that temple for atonement of their sin. So they'll be bringing animals in just like the old days and sacrificing them. But at three and a half years in, three and a half years in, the Antichrist is going to stop that agreement. He's, he's going to make them stop. Now, remember what I said uh, last, last week it, after World War II, after the six million Jews died horrible deaths uh, by the Nazis. In response of that, the world had sympathy for Israel. And as a result of that, the United States and the UN voted in May of 48 to allow Israel to become a nation again. So there was sympathy for them. I believe that this covenant that Israel will have with the Antichrist will be in response to the Gog and Magog war. So I believe that all of these countries are gonna come against Israel. They're all gonna be decimated. And I think that there's gonna be worldwide compassion once again for the Jews. And as a result of that, they're gonna get Jerusalem back. They're gonna get the Temple Mount back. That's, that's what I believe is gonna happen. Now, Matthew 24, 15 says, the time will come when you will see what, David, what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilege object, which is the Antichrist, that causes desecration standing in the holy place, which is the rebuilt temple. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person outside the house must go inside and pack. A person in the field must not return even to get a coat how terrible it will be for pregnant women and for mothers nursing their babies in those days. And pray that you, your flight will not be in the winter or on, and on the Sabbath, for that will be a time of greater horror than anything the world has ever seen or will ever see again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, the entire human race will be destroyed, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Okay, so it's happening. That is that what is being described in that scripture is the time of the tribulation or the last seven years of human history, especially the great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. Second Thessalonians 2.3 says, don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, which is the Antichrist, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and de uh, defy every god there is and tear down every object of adoration and worship. He will position himself in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Okay, so he's going to, after and three and a half years in, he's going to take over the temple. He's going to declare himself God and uh, want people to worship him. So that's the desecration, which leads into the third prophecy that is going to happen a rebuilt temple. Can't defile a temple, but there isn't a temple. Now, this is what I believe is about to happen. When you go back to the blood moons 
1949 and 50, the Holy Land was restored. We know that. When you go back to the blood moons of 1967 and 68, the holy city of Jerusalem was restored. We know that. What about the blood moons of 2014 and 2015? I believe that the holy temple is about to be restored. Right now, there is a movement in Israel to allow Jews to go to the temple to begin to pray. That's interesting because when that happened, I started looking like, you know, what's, what's, what happened in Israel? Did somebody attack Israel? Is something going on in Israel? What's going on? And so I did this Google search and I started pulling up film clips of newscasts of things that might've happened around September 27th and September 28th, which were the blood moons of September, depending on what side of the earth that you, you were on, it either fell on the 27th and the 28th. And it's interesting because I found this film clip on European news, this is what happened on the Temple Mount on September 27th. Roll that. Clashes between Palestinians and Israeli security forces continue at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem. Israeli police say a number of Muslim youths have erected makeshift barricades to prevent Jews from visiting the complex. Protesters threw stones and fireworks at officers. Authorities responded with riot dispersal means. The site is a focus of religious and political tension as the mosque, one of Islam's holiest sites, is situated in Temple Mount, a sacred area for Jews. The dispute is over the rules that govern access to the holy place. Jews are allowed to visit, but denied the right to pray in the compound. Palestinians fear that laws governing the site are about to change. Did you hear that? Palestinians feel that the laws are about to change. So we see evidence then of this war break out on the Temple Mount against Israeli police. They're the ones in the riot gear. And then the crazies with the rocks, because that's all the Palestinians seem to ever want to do is throw rocks. <laughs> and they're fighting over this Temple Mount because the Palestinians are feel that something is about to change. I believe that as a result of the blood moons, the temple, uh, what they call the Temple Institute, has picked a day on when they're going to storm that mount and they're going to rebuild their temple. The Temple Institute and other organizations are ready to right now to begin construction on the temple. They have the money, they have the supplies. They're just waiting for the right time. And I believe in the response to the Gog and Magog war, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel and allow them to rebuild the temple. Now, God in his mercy has given us prophecies so that we can see what's coming. And what a cool gift that is. And I can honestly say that I don't want my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids to live on this earth. I would much rather do eternity with them in the millennium. And understand that whatever thoughts that you might have had, because I think sometimes we talk about this and we go, oh, but yet I don't want him to come right now because oh, we got that really awesome vacation in Hawaii and you know, oh, it's already paid for and we really want to go. Whatever you could have on this earth, multiply it times a thousand and it will be that in the millennium. It's going to be so much greater. So don't, don't think about what you're going to lose or what you could lose because you're not going to lose anything. You're just going to gain. And when you look at all the mess in Syria, you, met, you look at all the mess in the Middle East, and I always have, have people that will say, you know, well, but how does the United States work into this? 
Two days after the blood moon was when the Russians bombed our backed rebels in Syria. That's two world powers backing two different sides, bombing each other. It's a mess. And let me tell you, no politician's gonna fix it. No leader is gonna make it better. The only thing that's gonna fix it is the second coming of Jesus Christ. 